Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When considering the Bible and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, it's very difficult to really appreciate what the Lord Jesus was doing and what he was teaching without really understanding the historical and cultural context of the society that he was ministering to. What the people believed in that time was very significant when you consider what the Lord Jesus was doing and what he was teaching. If you don't really consider what the people believed or the historical context of the people, then it's very easy to overlook the significance of what the Lord Jesus was doing throughout his ministry. One of the most common oversights with regards to this has to do with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were there in Israel. They were there in the land. While the Lord Jesus was ministering, he did spend some time ministering to the Samaritans. And we do have several examples of that in the scriptures. For example, when he went to go speak with the woman at the well, he also healed ten lepers, and one of the lepers was a Samaritan. There was also the circumstance when he was on his way to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans refused to allow him to stay the night there because he was going to Jerusalem. There, of course, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Without really understanding the Samaritans, it's very easy to go through these passages in the New Testament and really miss out on the depth of what is really taking place in Jesus' ministry and in his parables. It's really easy to miss out on the depth of the content of what is really being described and what is really occurring if the Samaritans are overlooked. And in general, they are. In general, people overlook the Samaritans and the importance of the Samaritans And so because of that, what we tend to do, or what we tend to see people do, is that people will look into the New Testament and look at these passages in the Scriptures, and without really understanding the cultural context of what is taking place or what is really described, without understanding that, people will tend to take these passages in the Scriptures and make something else out of them. In general, we take these passages in the Scriptures and we come to other conclusions We build new beliefs on the basis of what was recorded in the New Testament and then suggest that that was the purpose of these events or the reason why people were saying the things that they were saying. People will assume that things were said or things were done so that we can have these illustrations that we use today in order to build new doctrines or justify certain beliefs. And I do, of course, appreciate the value of allegorizing many things in order to convey other things that we would like to convey. However, in doing so, as I'm saying, it is very easy for a person to assume that that was the purpose of what was said or what was done. And when we do that, it's very easy for us to really miss out on the real depth of what the Lord Jesus was experiencing when he was conducting his ministry. And so who were the Samaritans? Who were they really? Well, to understand the Samaritans, it's necessary to really go back to the time of King Solomon at least to recognize what happened when he died. When King Solomon died, the nation of Israel was split relatively in half. It was divided into two parts. 
The main reason why the division took place was because of taxation, and that the northern tribes were no longer interested in supporting the kingdom that was based in Jerusalem through heavy taxation, and so they rebelled effectively. And approximately ten tribes set up a new kingdom that was recognized as the Kingdom of Israel, or the Northern Kingdom, there in the land of Israel. And then there were two tribes who remained in the south that established the Southern Kingdom of Israel, that was recognized as the Kingdom of Judah. In the south, the kingdom was composed of the tribe of Judah. It was composed of the tribe of Benjamin, and about half of the Levites were there as well. And then up in the north. The other ten tribes remained up there, about half the Levitical tribe, and of course there were people who went from one kingdom to the other. There was assimilation throughout the land, as the tribes did intermingle with one another, and so these are just relative approximations, really. But what happened was was that the kingdom in the north eventually fell into apostasy. They no longer worshipped the true and living God, and as punishment for that, the Lord sent the Assyrians. Down to the northern kingdom of Israel to destroy the northern kingdom. This happened in approximately 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came down from the north and they conquered the kingdom of Israel, leaving the kingdom of Judah by themselves for a period of time. Eventually, the Babylonians came down and conquered the kingdom of Judah. When the Assyrians took possession of the land in the northern kingdom, they deported a lot of people. In the records of Sargon II of Assyria, he indicated that he deported 27,290 inhabitants of that land. Now, that's approximately, as far as we can tell, maybe one fifth of the total population, and so it is a big number, but it certainly wasn't everyone. Many people were deported from that region. Many people, of course, died in the war, and then there were many people who were imported into that region. To set up new communities that, of course, would be loyal to Assyria. That's one of the reasons for the deportation and the importation, is that the king of Assyria took people who were not loyal to him and removed them from their homes, from their land, and put them into other regions where they would have to assimilate within the culture, within the communities that were loyal to him, loyal in the sense that they were contributing to his treasury, they were paying taxes. They would also join his military and engage in war on his behalf, and then there were people who were already loyal to him that he imported into the region, and they took over the homes and the farms and the communities of the people who he deported. And when they went in there, they assimilated with the remaining population and ensured that the remaining population would remain loyal through taxation. And perhaps joining his military, his loyal people would be there in order to report on any disloyalty that may start to occur within the community. This was a way of reestablishing a new society under the authority of Sargon II of Assyria. Some archaeologists have suggested that there were actually three waves of settlers being imported into the area. That through the examination of pottery that was similar to the pottery in Assyria, that they were able to give reasonable Approximate dates of about 721 to 647. There was an awful lot of pottery found that was produced around 689 BC that was the same. Either way, we know that there were a lot of people imported into the region, and there was assimilation that took place on both sides. The people who were allowed to remain in the land, who were 
Israelites. They were of the ten tribes. They assimilated with the people who were pagans from Assyria, and the people who were pagans assimilated also with the Israelites. And so there was a merging that took place from a cultural perspective and from a religious perspective. That there was a lot of assimilation that happened on both sides. There was intermarriage, and there were religious beliefs that were exchanged, and people built effectively new religions or derivations of their previous religions as the new society was being formed. And then many years later, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, was also conquered in a similar way that the northern kingdom was conquered. The southern kingdom fell into sin, and so God sent the Babylonians to come down and conquer the southern kingdom. The Babylonian Empire was built during this time, and they conquered the southern kingdom and took many of the people as slaves and deported them from the region of Judah up into Babylon. So many people were taken up into Babylon. Of course, some people were allowed to remain, but For the most part, the identifiable group or the group that could be identified as the Jews or the tribe of Judah and, of course, the tribe of Benjamin, some of the Levites and, of course, people from some of the other tribes who also assimilated within the southern kingdom, they all went up into Babylon and the people assimilated within the Babylonian culture, within the Babylonian society and built a new life for themselves there. This was around 586 B.C. And then in 538 B.C., the people were allowed to return. The Jews were allowed to return to the land of Israel to reestablish a new society for themselves there in the region of Israel or in the southern kingdom region. When they returned to the land, a lot had happened between the time that they were gone and the time that they had returned. A lot had happened in the sense of the religious beliefs of the people went through some dramatic changes. Probably the most important change that the people went through was the birth and the establishment of Pharisaical Judaism. You see, while the people were there in captivity in Babylon, the people of the southern kingdom, while they were there, they recognized that the reason why they were there was because they sinned and that God was punishing them for their sin. And so a decision was made that they would try to find a way to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law so that if they were to ever return to the land of Israel, they would be able to reestablish themselves and never be taken out of the land ever again for their sin. And so it was assumed that they could find a way to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law, and so they began to construct a lifestyle that they believed they could live, so that if they lived this certain way of life, then they would never come within the boundaries of possibly violating any of the laws of Moses. And so this lifestyle was a system of laws. It was a system of laws that they had derived with the belief that if they lived in obedience to these laws, then their obedience to these laws would prevent them from ever violating any of the laws of Moses. And so this was the birth of Pharisaical Judaism. It was the premise behind Pharisaical Judaism, and it's really important to understand this because they were going outside of the boundaries of the Mosaic Law, trying to keep themselves from coming within the boundaries of the Mosaic Law because of the risk of possibly violating the Mosaic Law. So when they returned, they returned with this religion. They returned with Pharisaical Judaism. They returned with a belief that they had found a way to live in total, complete obedience to the Mosaic Law. 
That's what they believed. And so when they returned, they returned with great enthusiasm because of the opportunity that they then had to be able to demonstrate the righteousness that they had been able to acquire or derive as a result of their repentance and obedience. But when they returned to the land of Israel, there were these other people who were already there, most notably the Samaritans. The Samaritans were already there in the region. They were, of course, in the region to the north of Jerusalem. But when the Jews were returning from Babylon on their way to return to Jerusalem to reestablish their society there, they passed through Samaria. And they had the opportunity to meet and spend time with the people of Samaria. When they were there in Samaria, they recognized that the people who remained were a mixed group of people, a mixed group of people in the sense that some of the people were people of Israel. They were of the ten tribes of Israel that had been conquered almost 200 years prior. They recognized that these were the people who were conquered 200 years prior and that they had gone through a lot of changes. Many of the people were not Israelites. They were imported into that region and they built a new society there. And after 200 years, a lot would change in that region. And so when the Jews returned, they passed through this region And they met the Samaritans, and there was a lot of uncertainty with regards to who was really of the nation of Israel, or who were the true valid descendants of the tribes of Israel. They were not able to identify these people with great confidence. And so when they were first confronted with one another, there was a lot of skepticism amongst the Jews with regards to the credibility or the validity of the people there in Samaria. Now, what made this awkward was that there were people in Samaria, there were many Samaritans who were living a life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. Certainly not all of them. It has never been like that in any society. There has always been a group of people who have been devoted to their religious beliefs and many people who are not devoted to those religious beliefs. So likewise, in the land of Israel, there was always a remnant of Jews, a remnant of Israelites, who were devoted to the Mosaic Law, and most people were not. But of those who were, of those Samaritans who were still living in obedience to the Mosaic Law, their identity was still in question. Their identity was still in question because there was no official records that people could look to and say that according to their genealogical record, they are truly descendants of the ten tribes of Israel, that at this point were well assimilated within the other cultures of the other countries. Now, it is quite possible that there were people who did maintain their genealogical records accurately. It certainly is possible. In fact, I would be surprised if there was no one who maintained their genealogical records over that 200-year period. I would be very surprised. However, for the most part, people didn't really know for sure, or at least they could not prove who they were relevant to this issue. If they did maintain their genealogical records, then they would have maintained their genealogical records according to the way that people maintain genealogical records in that time according to the law. And that way would have been according to the paternal line. This is, of course, very important. If they maintained their records, they would have maintained their records according to the paternal line. That is, that they would have identified themselves by their father's 
who was their father. And the reason why they did that and why they maintained genealogical records according to that standard of the paternal line is because that's how property rights were distributed to children from their parents. The ownership of property truly depends on your ability to defend it. And in general, in war, which is where these decisions are made in terms of who owns what land, these decisions are made in war. And wars are generally fought by men. Men generally fight wars. If you see an army of 10,000 people invading your community, you generally are not going to expect a large percentage of that army to be composed of women coming in to kill people. That's not what you would expect. In general, it's the men who wage war, and so it is the men who defend land, or it is the men who obtain land, and so they were recognized as the ones who actually own the land. And so inheritance would pass through the paternal line based on the males of an individual household. That's how property was managed for thousands of years throughout our history. But when the Jews returned from Babylon... They were not thinking along those lines. In fact, it was at this time that there was a radical change. There was a radical decision that was made. And that was that a Jew would be recognized according to their maternal line, not their paternal line. And so even if the Samaritans kept accurate records with regards to who they were from an identity perspective, when the Jews returned from Babylon, they would not have acknowledged the validity of the Samaritans' claims to be actual true Israelites because there was a change in belief that Pharisaical Judaism derived, and that was that a person's Jewish identity or Israelite identity was based on the maternal line. And so when they returned and there were discussions about who was who, who was legitimately an Israelite, who was not legitimately an Israelite or a Jew, This was a source of major conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so when the Jews found the Samaritans, those Samaritans, who were still living in obedience to the Mosaic Law to some degree, and they met each other, they were confronted with one another, the Samaritans were not considered to be legitimate Israelites because of the Pharisaical belief that a person is identified as an Israelite according to the maternal line, not according to the paternal line. But, of course, that was not the only source of conflict. The other source of conflict that initially took place between the Samaritans and the religious Jews was that the religious Jews came with their Pharisaical Judaism that was added on top of the Mosaic Law. And the Samaritans were not willing to embrace Pharisaical Judaism on top of the Mosaic Law. That was the other source of conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. First, it was the issue of how are we going to truly identify an Israelite or a Jew? Is it going to be according to the paternal line or according to the maternal line? And the second source of conflict had to do with how are we truly going to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law? Are we going to take the Mosaic Law at face value and just simply live in obedience to the law as it is written? Or are we going to have this entire fence or this lifestyle wrapped around the Mosaic Law of additional laws that we are going to live by in order to ensure that we never come within the boundaries of violating the Mosaic Law? And the Samaritans rejected the Pharisaical notion of living a life according to these lifestyles that they had developed while they were there in Babylon. 
And so these were the two conflicts between these two people groups, between the Samaritans and the Jews, that caused them to be isolated initially. It happened soon after the Jews left Babylon and started to resettle Jerusalem and the region of Judea. Now, of course, this wasn't really a big deal to the Samaritans. To the Samaritans, this was no real big deal because the Samaritans had already spent a couple of hundred years establishing a new community, a new society. They had built lives for themselves. They were perfectly happy with what they had, relatively speaking. And so for these Jewish people to come back and disagree with who they are or claim that they're not legitimate Israelites or whatever, that didn't mean anything to the Samaritans at this point. Because of their success, because of their lives, because of what they had for themselves. But when the Jews began to rebuild Jerusalem and they began to reinstitute worship according to the Mosaic Law, when they began to do this and they began to reconstruct their society, they began to live in competition, relatively speaking, with the Samaritans. And what I mean by competition is that they were prosperous, just as the Samaritans were prosperous. When people live their lives and they engage in productivity, they become productive and they build communities for themselves, they build lives for themselves, they build wealth for themselves, and the Jews were successful, much more than the Samaritans. They built an entire culture that apparently surpassed the culture and the society of the Samaritans. And so the Jews increased in influence, they increased in wealth, they were definitely experiencing many more blessings than the Samaritans were. And as you can expect, there was a lot of jealousy and coveting between the two people groups because our flesh will direct us to measure our success or our failure by comparing ourselves with other people. And the Samaritans were certainly no exception. As they began to compare themselves with the Jews and see the success of the Jewish people in comparison with the success of their own society, they became jealous and covetous. And in addition to that, the Jews still didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans because the Samaritans were not willing to embrace Pharisaical Judaism. And of course, they didn't really know which Samaritans were actually Israelites or which Samaritans were really Assyrians who were imported in there. They had no idea They were not able to determine that, or if they could, again, there was the conflict of how are we really going to identify an Israelite? Is it going to be through the maternal line or the paternal line, or is it going to be on the basis of their religious observances? There were many issues that they just never resolved. And so as the societies began to evolve and develop, the Samaritans found themselves in a situation where the rejection of the Jews became significant. It was not so significant before because the human need for acceptance, the need that we have for acceptance, is heavily influenced by who we pursue to obtain acceptance. When the Jews returned from Babylon, they were considered to be nobody. They were considered to be no one of importance or of consequence. But when they became quite successful and they became important and they had influence in the society that was being rebuilt at this time, then the acceptance of the Jews did become important, or the rejection of the Jews became important. The Samaritans had a natural desire to be accepted by the Jews, because the Jews were becoming prominent. They had influence. They had power. They were somebody. 
We can easily relate to this today. Today, if we meet somebody new in our daily experience and we find out that this person is not considered to be important in society, if they don't like us, we don't care. However, if they are very important in our society and they don't like us, we generally care. We care more, and that's because of this need that we have for acceptance. And the Samaritans were definitely beginning to experience this, which is a natural thing for anybody to experience as time goes on. And so as time went on, the Jews became very successful and they rebuilt their society. They began to worship the living God there in Jerusalem once again. They began to go to Jerusalem three times a year as they were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year according to the Mosaic Law to present their offerings and to present themselves. They began to reestablish the worship of Israel the worship of Israel in the sense of the worship that was defined by our God in the Mosaic Law. And as they began to do this, the Samaritans were isolated more and more from the Jews because, again, the Jews were not confident in the identity of the people of Samaria. And, of course, the Samaritans had rejected Pharisaical Judaism. So if they were to go to Jerusalem, if the Samaritans went to Jerusalem To observe the Mosaic law with the other Jews, none of the Jews would have accepted the Samaritans. The Samaritans would have been fully rejected as a people in two ways. First of all, they would not accept the Samaritans because they were not confident in their nationalistic identity as a person. But the other reason, which was even more important, was that the Samaritans were unwilling to embrace Pharisaical Judaism. And so on both counts, they would not be accepted there in Jerusalem as worshipers of the true and living God. They were rejected more and more as the Jews were building their society, building their religious infrastructure. The Samaritans were isolated more and more because of the Jews' success. And so this motivated the Samaritans to build their own temple in their own community there on Mount Gerizim. They eventually got fed up with the rejection of the Jewish people and just simply built their own temple, their own place of worship, there in their community. And this was a key dividing point between the Jews and the Samaritans. This was a key point of division because at this point they are definitely deviating from the Mosaic Law. Because according to the Mosaic Law, Jerusalem was the official place to worship the living God. And I will continue with this subject in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net